the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection at Michigan State University. And this is Brand Protection Stories, stories about the practice of brand protection by those who live it. We are speaking with members of the brand protection community about notable cases in their careers, stories that are stranger than fiction, but in fact, real life scenarios, where we learn about the practice of brand protection and the challenges faced by brand owners, law enforcement, government authorities, and consumers, among other members of the world community. The industrial park had a, a security guard. You had to have a reason to be in to, in to gain access to the industrial park. So we obviously did not have that at this point. And you're right, it goes back to boots on the ground. I, I know the, the world of brand protection has changed so much that you, you obviously have that online facet, but you still have to have that boots on the ground or that human component uh, once you, um, you identify a specific place or a target uh, that, that needs to be investigated. So to make, this was not a quick investigation at all. This took many man hours, um, many days, um, many evenings um, parking a car outside the industrial park in the dark <laughs> and following various cars that we thought were coming in and out of that specific business. Jason Daniels is the U.S. Intelligence Team Manager of Brand Protection at CoreSearch. He has been recognized as a subject matter expert in the field of brand protection. With over 20 years of intellectual property theft investigations, he has worked with global law enforcement and private industry professionals, focusing efforts on combating the manufacture and distribution of illicit products. Jason began his career as a law enforcement officer in North Carolina and was introduced to the world of counterfeiting while conducting investigations at the North Carolina Secretary of State's office. He successfully created the first state anti-counterfeiting task force, which continues to be in existence today. He later went on to manage brand protection investigations for several global companies and has been published on several occasions, writing articles pertaining to the dangers of counterfeit goods. Jason has also written curriculum and trained law enforcement and custom agencies around the world. He is a graduate of Shaw University, where he studied criminal justice and continued his graduate studies in justice administration at the University of Louisville. In addition, he has attended several courses by the Michigan State University's Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection and received a professional certificate in performance leadership from Cornell University. He continues to be an industry leader as he lends his voice to brand protection programs seeking assistance. Today, we are speaking with Jason Daniels, a well-known and well-respected member of the brand protection community. I'm certain many of you have listened to him speak at conferences 
or at other events in that charming North Carolina accent. And most likely, you have also sought advice and guidance from him. I thought I knew Jason well, and then a few years ago, at an ACAP Brand Protection Summit reception, he sat down at a piano and started to play and sing, which reminded me of the question we have posed. Where do brand protection professionals come from? Well, just about everywhere. Welcome to Brand Protection Stories, Jason. Thank you, Lee. I, I was a little worried when you said you thought you knew me well. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure where we were going with that. No, no I, I remember the uh, I remember the summit very well. It was you know always enjoy the networking uh, activities and you know I think it's invaluable for especially brand protection of, of professionals and. Uh, it's, if you have law enforcement or prosecutors that are in certain uh, summits and, and, and conferences and things, it's just so nice to be able to rub shoulders, exchange business cards, um, and, and know that you have those contacts uh, in, your, in your network for the future. So uh, it's good to be here. I really appreciate you, you reaching out. And uh, yeah, I look forward to, to sharing um, uh, some of my past activities and, <clears throat> and maybe where we're going in the future. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's jump right into it. Um, I mentioned music. And in fact, when you started your education, you were a music major in college. Is that I right? Was. I, I was. Uh, yeah, I was actually a, a voice, voice performance major uh, and a piano minor. And uh, that's not <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that and they don't they don't know that. But, uh, you know, over the years, you know, people pick up. Uh, on in a bit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting to go to criminal justice from that, right? <laughs> it, it definitely is. But you know, I have found it interesting um, through many examples that there seems to be a link between music, the talent, the understanding, and the hard sciences. Right. Um, I have found it fascinating that many people that succeed in a scientific or technical discipline also have a musical talent, brain surgeons who are concert violinists, coders who are <clears throat> composers. And I found that link so interesting. I'm wondering if you see the investigator role, discipline um, that you have held throughout these years and your music ability as connected. That's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, just, just to jump back a bit, um, I, I did have a professor years ago, and I remember this vividly, that said, if you keep music a hobby, you'll love it for the rest of your life. If, if, if you make it your, you know, your profession, uh, some of that love may, may not be there, you know, and that ambition and the motivation may, may falter over the years. So, uh, you know, that's, that's one thing. I'm, I, it is a great hobby for me. It runs deeply in my family. My son, uh, my deceased father was a, was a very good, who actually had his own um, independent record company, which is a totally another uh, wow. rabbit hole. But to get back to your question, yeah, I, I think so. I think where it's helped me more than anything is being able to communicate to people. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, if, if you're performing, uh, you, you have to be on, if, if you will. You know, I mean, if you're on stage or, and you're, you're, you're performing, 
Um, you have to have a certain amount of charisma or stage presence, if you will, um, to be able to communicate effectively with people. And one of the things that I have found over the years is I feel like this is one of my strengths is being able to um, tell a story uh, and, and bring that to, to even presenting a case to a prosecutor or even a law enforcement agency, telling a story with the appropriate facts, you know, with your, you know, your intro, your body, your conclusion. It's almost like singing a song, right? Um, and, and being able to present that uh, in an adequate fashion so that you get the support that you need, um, whether it said, whether it be private sector or, or public sector. So I, I do think that there's a nexus there. I would say that that's, you know, when you ask the question, that's the first thing that came to mind for me. Yeah, well, definitely effectively engaging with people is <clears throat> is a performance, sure. right? Sure. And you figure out kind of where you need to start, where you need to, you know, spike in your information, where you need right. to conclude. Um, so that that's very interesting. But from music, you then switch to criminal justice. I did. I did. Um, <clears throat> it was one of those things where... Um, I thought about what really, really interests me. Uh, it was music and true crime. <laughs> I read ah. true crime books all the time. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, I still do. And I'm one of those individuals that, yeah, I record all the, the 48 hours in 2020 and, and all those, those things that uh, a lot of people don't watch because, it, you know, it's negative. But I've always been interested in... Um, the motivation of, of people and the criminal mind, you know, you go back to uh, the old triangle, you know, you have intent, you have opportunity, um, and then a crime occurs. So um, just the mindset of what motivates a, a criminal has always been extremely intriguing uh, to me. And even in the early days when, you know, I came through the police academy uh, and went into law enforcement, I always wanted to be a um, always wanted to be a homicide detective mm. until I became one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that that tie with fiction, you know, because we say here on Brand Protection <laughs> Stories that, uh, you know, it's crazier than than fiction. You know, the real life that we deal with in brand protection is stranger than fiction. Um, so it's interesting to hear that pull for you, uh, toward criminal justice because of that. Um, so when you graduated college, as you indicated, you became a police officer. Uh, yeah. you mentioned your, your dad. Now he was yes. a civil servant or worked for the town. He was. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So, so dad was a city manager. Uh, he actually had, uh, around 40 years altogether and worked for uh, three different municipalities. I think uh, in the beginning, uh, obviously had some musical talent. So he supported, he supported the, the music ambitions that I had at an early age. But um, he also would have liked for me to have gone into public administration um, when I decided I wanted to, to work for the government. He was not too enthused when I decided to go to the police academy and become a law enforcement officer. Um, so he, he supported it, but I could tell it was not what he really wanted me to do. And I think that a lot of that was based upon 
you know, his interaction with the local police, you know, being a manager and, and seeing what what had gone on. And, you know, here I am, a, a, well, I say young kid, but, you know, in my early 20s, um, <laughs> you know, looking to, to, to embark upon this new career, if you will. Yeah. So what were your early days um, of being a cop like? Oh, interesting. <clears throat> you know, I always saw myself being a chief of police in some small southern town. I really did. That was, you know, that would have been it for me. Uh, that would have incorporated the public administration um, <clears throat> wants for my father as well. But yeah, I, you know, I, I worked in Western North Carolina um, uh, for this uh, municipality. We, right now it's grown obviously over the years, but you know, we had, a, you know, a little over a hundred officers, uh, if you will. And we saw everything. It was just general calls of, uh, for service. As a matter of fact, something that's interesting is I actually started as a, um, a public safety officer. So the, all the police were cross-trained in fire suppression duties as well. So imagine having a police, a police cruiser or a car with fire gear or turnout gear in the trunk of your car. So essentially, you could very well be dispatched to a, a fully involved structure fire, as well as a domestic, depending on where you were, you know, you know stationed for that particular um, tour of duty. So wow, it, so interesting concept. Yeah. yeah, yeah, quite a variety. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm sure you saw all the range of crimes too. Sure. So <clears throat> you know, deaths, robberies, sexual assaults. You know children right. crimes against children sure. um you know small be, wanting to be a small town sheriff makes me in the south makes me think of heat of the night so absolutely uh, i can yes. picture you being that <laughs> being that sheriff um so being a police officer in that capacity and also a firefighter sure. um and everything else that was needed in that capacity what skills uh, soft or hard skills developed there that you think transferred to your career in brand protection? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, going back to, I, I was fortunate because I, I quickly became a field training officer. So that was my first, um, my first stint with any type of managerial um, uh, position. So I, I, at, I supervised new recruits that came in from the police academy that were new recruits to our our agency um and and being able to mentor the those individuals and of course we there was a complete structure so if you had a new individual that came in from from the police academy there was a completely structured organized process they had to go through before they were able to to work independently um so i, I think having that communication with them as well as communication with um, the general public and such a different facet of activity. Um, you know, there was, uh, there was something I read years ago on, you know, a law enforcement officer is, a, you know, a protector, a social worker. And anyway, there was a, a lot of bullet items of all the different hats that an effective, successful police officer needs. Um, during the, the, the uh, course of their career. Because if you're going to a heated domestic, if you're going, unfortunately, to a, a death investigation, if somebody's broken into a house or it's just simple motor vehicle accident, you have to have the mindset 
to co communicate with all those different individuals with all these different emotions that they're feeling based upon the specifics of whatever the call for service is. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that, again, coming back to that, I think that that is a, uh, a very needed, essential component for someone to be successful um, in, in law enforcement. Also, and, and you know, a lot of people don't think about that. The obvious thing is, hey, this person needs to be a really good investigator, or this person needs to ask the extra questions, you know, that, that need. You also need to be in tune with what's going on around you, your surroundings, your sixth sense, if, if you will, you know, of, of what's going on. So as, as my career developed, you know, I, I left being a field training officer and moved into being an investigator. Um, and again, I was, it was in a rural community in, in Western North Carolina. And if you were the assigned detective, whatever came in that day, if you were on call, whether that's a bank robbery or whether it's, you know, uh, you know, uh, a death investigation, if you will, you're the lead investigator on, on that particular case. So, and you work independently unless it's something you, you know, require assistance on. So I think the investigative skills became polished uh, during that time as well. Um, and then I had the opportunity to move on from, uh, from the sheriff's office uh, to the secretary of state's office in North Carolina, where I became a special agent. And that's where the new realm of criminal activity that I had absolutely no clue existed yeah. uh, as a local officer uh, became very, very apparent. So, so when you moved over to be a special agent, for the Secretary of State, this was in a intellectual property investigator position, right? Did you know what IP represented at that time? I knew what intellectual property was. Um, I had never had an intellectual property investigation, nor a complaint. Um, because I feel like at that time, Leah, at the local level, it was fairly non-existent, especially in, in, in my region. Now, maybe if you were, you know, obviously in uh, New York Metro or LA, uh, I'm sure that, you know, those, they had uh, complaints that would come in um, from different brands and, and have other investigations. But in the world I lived in, it was something that was relatively brand new. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there was a big learning curve with it. Yeah, I'm, I imagine so. And, and I think that's the case for a lot of people that get into this field. Um, I think one of the other aspects is possibly a, a reluctance of law enforcement to get involved in IP crime, maybe not understanding the nexus with other criminal activities um, and not giving it as much uh, as, as many resources right. or uh, education on that. That's, but that's very unique in in North Carolina, right? Because sure. of your Secretary of State, um, and if if we could talk about her a little bit, sure, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I was very fortunate to uh, to work with Ms. Marshall, uh, Elena Marshall. Um, was uh, uh, was the Secretary of State and, and still is, who has been a wonderful advocate uh, for intellectual property investigations and protecting brands, and not only protecting brands, but protecting people from potentially hazardous 
um, you know, products that can get into big box stores uh, that are mom and pop stores or open air markets or online, of course, mm -hmm. uh, which is for those that are in brand protection um, and have been in brand protection for years, you know how things have changed over the years uh, from 40 foot containers being seized at customs ports to now everything being drop shipped. I mean, right. the, the whole component of, um, you know, uh, illicit trade, if you will, has completely changed. The marketplaces where counterfeits are sold have expanded through the years as consumer buying habits have changed. Once sold on folding tables at flea markets, now the sale of counterfeits online is the biggest threat and the most difficult to police and enforce against. Along with websites and selling platforms, counterfeits are now sold through social media and make appearances in the metaverse. Counterfeiters go where the consumers go. Many of the enforcement actions against these criminals take place in the physical world, and as we learn in the brand protection stories, are never short on drama. Um, and and that's something that you know I think I think Miss Marshall was in tune to, um, and I kind of felt like in in the days when I worked there <clears throat> that we were the leading agency, uh, if you will, with trying to train uh, local law enforcement. Um, trying to um, get in front of a global scale, if you will, at conferences and, and events to, to preach the message, if you will, um, but basically to try to gain support and, uh, and, and have advocates. And Ms. Ms. Marshall has been instrumental in making this happen. And we were very fortunate that when, when I was there, she supported um, the implementation of uh, the first state uh, anti-counterfeiting task force, which is still in existence today. And it has grown unbelievably since mm -hmm. the first 10 officers um, were sworn in uh, and signed mutual aid agreements. Um, geez, probably what, 2003 or 2004. So that's how long wow, the task force wow. has been in existence and, and continues to grow. And as you're probably aware, they have a, a yearly um, summit uh, and, and training episode for, uh, for local law enforcement, federal law enforcement that brands come to um, and, and network and, and train those officers who have little to no um, experience with intellectual property theft. So right. it, it continues to, you know, it continues to be passed on, you know, mm -hmm. which I think is, is fantastic. So um, yeah. And I was fortunate to, to, to work for her. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of meeting yeah. Secretary Marshall when she accepted the ACAT Brand Protection Hero Award oh, yeah. back in, mm -hmm. I think, 2019. Um, and you, you mentioned her work and, and your work and the task force. And I think you guys have really become the model of how to do it correctly, how to understand it, how to... Um, bring in partners, how to educate. Um, so it's, it, it's, yeah, I hadn't realized it had been that long, but the fact <laughs> I almost that, didn't want to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, when we throw years out these days, it's a little startling, but, right. uh, but we should celebrate that. I mean, it, sure. you, you helped establish it. It still continues. It's the yeah. model for other states, other secretaries of state go to her, um, you know, and, and ask for advice on, 
on how to uh, combat IP crime. Um, so it's it's yeah. a great accomplishment. Yeah, great accomplishment. Yeah, it's yeah, it's grown quite quite a bit, and I'm very pleased to have been a part of it. For yeah, sure. yeah. So jumping into one of your stories, um, after you worked at the Secretary of State's office, um, you then started doing work with the Recording Industry Association of America. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain what that organization is? Sure. Actually, the RIAA is a trade association that, that represents the record labels in the United States. So it's also the entity that gives out uh, gold and platinum uh, records to artists based upon sales. Uh, so next time you're in a hard rock cafe, you go up and look at one of the gold or platinum records, and you'll typically see the RIAA trademark or logo that's also lo- located there. But I worked for the anti-piracy unit. Um, and, 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 you know, Lee, it was really interesting because if you had told me years ago that I would have left law enforcement to move to the private sector um, to in- investigate bogus goods, you know, th- that was something that, that wasn't even on the radar. But through having the task force in North Carolina, one of the missions that we had was to go out and train law enforcement on how to adequately investigate intellectual property theft. And some of that training was done with multiple brands um, that would support those trainings and also attend. So I was got a cold call one day from the RIAA that asked, hey, would you be interested in potentially um, you know, moving to Atlanta and, and overseeing investigations in, in the Southeast for us? And um, I thought about it for about five minutes and went, sure, happy to do it. <laughs> yeah. So I never thought about it. So um, moved moved to Atlanta and uh, we had a team uh, that that was there that that worked right outside, actually in, in Marietta, so the greater Atlanta uh, area. But we oversaw uh, anti-piracy investigations from North Carolina down to Florida, over to Texas, back up to Oklahoma, through Kentucky, back to the East Coast. So we had a team of investigators that that uh, worked with law enforcement, local law enforcement, federal law enforcement uh, in those areas, specifically for anti-piracy investigations. Now, it, it's commonly known for those that are in brand protection, <clears throat> and it was a staple for a while. But it's common to, to know that a lot of the proceeds from uh, illegal distribution of, of counterfeit goods goes to fund, fund your, your local gangs. Um, your local organized crime chapters, uh, wherever they are, and and there has been monies, you know, that have been tracked back to um, terrorist sympathizers and and other groups that may not have the um, um, uh, the best in thought for you know um, uh, the United States, and 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 that and that's been proven. But um, yeah, so we worked anti-piracy investigations. Um, at that time, it was dealing with physical product, um, which sounds it's kind of funny now. Everyone streams everything on Spotify right. or by heart, uh, iHeartRadio or, or, or what have you. But uh, yeah, there was still a lot of money that was made in, in physical product. And it wasn't only uh, music industry. It was also uh, Motion Picture Association um, uh, um product as well as as software software was that had been ripped off um uh, was was very uh, prominent uh during those times as well 
Wow. So I think one of the skills probably that you uh, brought back to life when you're working at RIAA was your your undercover skills. So <laughs> playing a role, right. trying to <clears throat> kind of infiltrate the either the location or the network. Um, and as I understand this operation operated out of a, like a, an industrial park that was gated. Yes. Um, and it was, uh, you, you guys did surveillance, but it was difficult to get in to the actual facility. Right. So what steps did you take to accomplish that? Oh, yeah. So just, just to give uh, our listeners a, a little bit of background, um, we had been involved with an investigation with law enforcement actually in, in southern Alabama. Um, there were several locations in, in Alabama, and it literally started at open air markets and mom and pop stores. Uh, and and it, you'll see where <clears throat> you know this this rolls back to you know working working the individuals that you know were selling and distributing the products uh, illegally and being able to develop a rapport uh, and communicate with them effectively to uh, gain more intelligence and more data based upon the investigation. So you start with one single entity that may branch out to to five ten. 12, uh, and you're looking for the big fish, uh, if, if you will. So yeah, this, this investigation actually initiated in Alabama. There was um, multiple, uh, our entire team was involved with it, <clears throat> and as well as numerous law enforcement agencies. But we had gained information that a major supplier um, to Florida, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, and, and Georgia, uh, mm. that the product that was being uh, manufactured illegally was coming out of the greater Atlanta area. Um, <clears throat> when we were able to develop that information and prove that indeed that was what was happening, we tracked it back to an industrial park. And you're right, it was a gated industrial park. The industrial park had a, a security guard you had to have a reason to be in to, in to gain access to the industrial park. So we obviously did not have that at this point. And you're right, it goes back to boots on the ground. I, I know the, the world of brand protection has changed so much that you, you obviously have that online facet, but you still have to have that boots on the ground or that human component uh, once you, um, you identify a specific place or a target uh, that, that needs to be investigated. So to make, this was not a quick investigation at all. This took many man hours, um, many days, um, many evenings um, parking a car outside the industrial park in the dark <laughs> and following various cars that we thought were coming in and out of that specific business. And this, there were many of us, we had like, I think in, in one, uh, one night, we probably had six different cars that were all manned and set up in different places. We had contact with, with one another uh, through, through radios and through cell phones. And, uh, you know, we would start our surveillance and we would follow these vehicles when, when they would leave. <clears throat> Luckily, we were able to identify that the product was indeed coming out of uh, the specific location where we thought. So back to the drawing board. So how do we get in? 
you know, there's we've got to be able to be able to, to um, substantiate this information uh, so we can work with law enforcement to hopefully have a criminal investigation and support that. We were fortunate enough to find out that there was a trucking company that delivered um, to this specific location. So I actually made contact with the with the trucking company and asked, can I tag along one day when you have your next um, uh, drop or, or um, delivery, if you will, to, to this location? And they were all about it. They gave me, <laughs> they gave me a uniform even. Uh. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so that, you know, we were all sitting around joking, is this really going to work? And so I was able to walk in with the delivery or ride in with the delivery guy. So we got past security. Um, when we made the delivery, and you have to understand the delivery was a lot of raw product. So everything from uh, DVDRs, DVD recordables, CD recordables, um, towers of what we refer to as burning labs. Um, right. so, so towers where you had multiple burners, um, jewel cases and, and things of that nature. <clears throat> so as we're unloading, you know, uh, the individual that is working at the, uh, the, the business invites me, invites me in to, to make the delivery. And as I walk in, I see the entire manufacturing facility in plain view, uh, where all this raw product is being turned into bogus product and then being distributed through those states I had mentioned earlier. So just that alone gave us the opportunity to approach law enforcement, which we had a very good rapport in the area with, and uh, search warrants were, um, uh, were executed at the location. And uh, if I think we, we ended up taking up several tractor and trailer loads of bogus product and, and raw material and also manufacturing equipment away from and, and arrests were made. So, yeah, that's it. Was, it that sounds very simple with this conversation. No, but it, it, it took doesn't. a long time yeah. to put everything together. Yeah. It, remi it reminds me that good police work uh, involves patience which is is pretty hard to to maintain for a long period of time as you said yeah. you had you know multiple cars just waiting to be able to figure out how to access and who to follow um and how to bring this this network down uh, the, yeah. the trucking company i find interesting you said that they were very cooperative um, were. i don't know if that's always the case but um probably you know, not yeah. we had a we had we we had a good relationship with them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting. And, and just visualizing the tractor trailer loads in the amount of, of uh, uh, either movies or music or what they were copying. Um, the volume of that is, is pretty startling. Right. Yes. It was substantial. Uh, and, and it was to the point that we did see a major reduction um, in the uh, adjoining states uh, when we were out doing uh, additional investigations. So we do know, know it took a toll on that distribution network for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. Counterfeiting is a violation of trademark rights, one of the intellectual property rights granted to innovators and companies along with patents, copyrights, and trade secrets. Trademarks tell the world who a brand is, building on trust, quality, and reputation of its name. For consumers, 
It designates the origin of the product bearing the trademark in word form and or logo. In other words, where the product came from and who produced it. Uh, what, one thing I just want to mention, because you, as we were starting out this podcast, you were talking about um, <clears throat> criminal justice um, major. Another case that you worked on with Secretary Marshall, I think, involved counterfeit handbags um, or, or no, or counterfeit watches. I can't remember which yeah. one it was, but uh, one thing that I found interesting about that is is something that we talk about in brand protection is you know the true need for education across all lines. Um, and I think the individual that you guys brought an action against was actually a student yes. that was studying criminal justice, but yet that's correct. <laughs> selling counterfeits. Yes. And, and, and using a good way to pay for uh, studies uh, through the distribution of counterfeit goods. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, there was an investigation uh, that I had that where the numerous complaints had come in. Uh, that an individual was selling um, bogus designer watches uh, on, on an auction platform that, that we're all very familiar with. And first of all, <clears throat> for someone to buy a designer watch <laughs> unknowing uh, without seeing the product, that's just, you know, that's, that's, that's more money than I've got anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anyway, there were there were numerous um, there were numerous complaints that came in, and once once we found you know the username and and did some some research into the individual, uh, and being able to see that that um, that sale history, you know, I began to reach out uh, to each customer you know that had purchased, and it was amazing. Um, you know, those that automatically said, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an avid collector of this style of watch and these are bogus watches and this is why. So I uh, ended up um, furthering our, our investigation, gaining as much intelligence as we could and found out who the individual was and had an interview with the individual who stated that, you know, they knew that it was not real, that the products were not real. They were, they were knockoffs. I love that term. Oh, they're, mm -hmm. they're knockoffs. Okay. Well, Sounds so innocent <laughs> when that term is used. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there was an arrest that was made. Um, obviously the individual it admitted to doing it. And um, during the interview process, uh, the question was brought up is, you know, what are you doing this for? Uh, well, I'm, I'm currently in college and I'm studying criminal justice and this is how I'm, you know, paying my way through school. So yeah, it did happen. You, you can't make some of this, some of this up. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you can't. And I know, I know we've had this discussion as, as many brand protection professionals have on, on this subject, also very related of um, family members or friends that will admit to possibly yes. buying counterfeit or, or exploring it. Um, and I think our response, I have found my response <laughs> many times saying, do you know what I do? <laughs> <laughs> 
let me explain why you should not be buying pharmaceuticals off of a Canadian pharmacy. Right. Um, You know, why the price of this item on a selling platform is so low. Yes. Uh, Why the item that you can't get in stores is all of a sudden available online. (laughs) Right. Um, And, you know, it, it kind of goes back to that, that criminal justice student of that kind of naive nature of not understanding this crime. Right. Um, so I think we, we find even personal challenges Absolutely. in educating yes. uh, people about the dangers of counterfeits. Um, one very effective way of educate, educating uh, folks is, is, you know, through writing about it, uh, teaching on it. And I know you have done a number of writing curriculum courses. Um, You were also (laughs) an author for us for the brand protection professionals, Mm -hmm. professional, excuse me, talking about counterfeit hoverboards when those were very popular, talking about a popular item that um, the counterfeits prove very dangerous. Um. So your 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 background in or your activities in educating, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> I've always thought that that's the best way. Um, and and I, I relate everything back to, to law enforcement and it's just easier for me. You know, when uh, community policing became a big deal, Community policing, it wasn't a new concept. It was something that had always been around if you were an effective law enforcement agency. You know, the mentality is to educate your community on what to look for. Um, You know, even comes back to like the community watch programs, which I I know some jurisdictions still have that and they advocate for it or something very similar. But it's having active law enforcement in a specific community being able to train them on what's happening in that community so they can keep their eyes out because there's only so many law enforcement officers. But if you train your community appropriately, they all support you and work with you, you know, and you you collaborate together. So, you know, I I take that and and move it directly into into what you're asking about with educating the law enforcement and community on the negative effects of, of counterfeit goods. Um, you're right. Some people feel like they get a deal on certain things and wow, you, you go brain dead. Hey, I got it for this much. Okay. Well, you should be careful because it's a pharmaceutical or it's a a lithium ion battery or something that could potentially be dangerous, uh, for you. Case in point, kind of going back to what you had, you had stated earlier about how we need to educate our families even. Um, <clears throat> and I told you this story, and I, I think it's appropriate to share based upon this. Um, several years ago, um, my lovely wife uh, purchased a designer watch for me uh, for a holiday. And um, I, I, I had wanted it for, for quite some time. However, you know, I, I wasn't going to purchase it for myself you know um there were there were some housing things that needed to be taken care of right um so anyway loved it it was fantastic and i had a hard time asking 
so, so where'd you get this? <laughs> Do you mind if I ask, you know, where, where you got this, you know? Um, and we went to a website and, and, you know, I thought it was authentic, you know, but doing what I have done for a long time, I was, you know, I was curious and I, <laughs> I didn't want to act like, you know, um, I, I didn't care, you know, and I, I wasn't appreciative, if you will. So I snuck to a jeweler. <laughs> She didn't know that. So I snuck to a jeweler uh, and it, it's authentic, which was nice to hear. But, you know, I because when it comes down to it, this it, it's not the world she lives in. So, right. She, but it's funny because you're right. We do need to educate uh, even the ones we love. But I, you're right. It's been such a thing to go out and train law enforcement and and see like their eyes open. Wow, you know, how many felonies in progress can you walk up on? I mean, if you look at the different state statutes, and of course they're all different, and especially the federal statutes are, are different as well. But yeah, I mean, it's out there, it's happening. Um, and if you want to be an assertive officer, you know, do all you can to, to, to learn about this. Um, and, and obviously the, uh, the Department of Justice are, um, has the grants that are given out each year to law enforcement agencies. Um, that can focus their attention and efforts on intellectual property theft. So if you're a law enforcement officer and you're, you're reading this, go to the Department of Justice uh, website and, and look specifically for that grant. It's a great way for your uh, agency to get involved yeah. with this type. And it really opens doors for you uh, as well to, to yeah. learn and, and be engaged with the brands because the brands want to support you. I mean, they can't do anything without your help. And, and those two entities have to work together to be successful. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> Thank yeah. you for bringing that up because I don't think uh, a lot of people know about those programs and that right. partnership is is absolutely essential. Sure. It doesn't work without without partnerships. For those policing agencies who don't have resources to build out their knowledge and be prepared to combat IP crime, there are resources available from the U.S. Department of Justice, as Jason indicated. Specifically, the grants provided under the Intellectual Property Enforcement Program, Protecting Public Health, Safety, and the Economy from Counterfeit Goods and Product Piracy, and also under the Bureau of Justice Assistance in Leadership and Service to Achieve Safer Communities. Be sure to visit bja.ojp.gov slash funding slash opportunities. Um, so as we're winding down, Jason, there's a few things that I want to be sure to ask of you. And, mm -hmm. and one is you've, you've been in, uh, you know, law enforcement brand protection profession for, for, for a while. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, as you've seen the evolution of brand protection um, and the training of law enforcement over the years, is there an element that you think um, really stands out as essential for success of any type of program? Yes, I can talk on this. Um, yeah. <laughs> You, regardless if you're a brand or if you're law enforcement, the commitment has to be there. 
I understand. Now that's 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 easier said than done. I mean, if if you're, I mean, because even regardless, if you're public or private sector, the focuses change, priorities change. You know, if, if you have violent crime in your neighborhood, you know, I can imagine as a, a chief of police, you probably that's your focus. It's not you know prioritizing someone on a street corner, maybe selling uh, illicit goods. I, I get that. I, I, I get the real world uh, issues that come. If you're a brand, you know, um, things change as well. And that leadership may not be there that supported you at, at one point to where, you know, you're able to um, be able to accomplish what you were able to do uh, in the past. I think it's important for people, entities to be successful, again, private or public, is to be able to look in the future. Um, and what's going to happen, what's going to happen to brand protection in five to 10 years? You have to be visionary. Um, I was having this discussion with a, a colleague of mine last week. When you recognize that there's an issue, oh, there's been an issue. You're already behind the eight ball at this point. So there's a need to be assertive <clears throat> in protecting your brands. Um, there's a, a need to be able to show that return of investment, the value you bring to your company. Uh, and, and sometimes that's not easy either because you need to convey it in a manner um, that is receptive from senior, for senior leadership to show what your value is. Um, <clears throat> So I think that forward thinking is, is a major component. Technology is going to continue to change. I mean, look given. at what's happened yeah. since COVID. I mean, you know, with everything going online, you know, I had mentioned earlier, you know, these 40-foot containers are no longer packed. We're getting drop shipments now. Uh, anybody can be a seller, whether it be on any social media platform. Uh, it's afforded us the opportunity to all, you know, be your own business people, mm -hmm. uh, and then you choose what you what what you want to sell and 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 distribute. So that's not going to go away. Applications are going to be more complicated. You know, when you start thinking about um, you know um, uh, you know artificial intelligence that's coming in. You know, artificial intelligence can be used for bad or good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there's a lot of lot of forward thinking. I think needs to be addressed. I think it's imperative for um, brand protection units to to be able to assess that and work together, uh, and even even with other brands, on bringing the appropriate stakeholders together to identify the challenges and the possible challenges that may be ex experienced in that arena in the next five to ten years, and how you're going to work together to combat it. That was long winded. That was no, but that was that was wonderful, and it kind of <laughs> leads in. And you may have already answered my last question, but uh, or it, it or maybe a, even a bigger challenge. Um, if you could select one word <laughs> to describe um, either the cases you've worked on or your involvement in brand protection, what would that one word be? You know what? You stole my thunder, but I'm going to be honest with you right here. I have the word evolution. Ah, okay. <laughs> written down right there. Yeah, I would say evolution. And and again, 
the reason I would define it that way is I remember when when prosecutors wouldn't would not take my cases as as an agent because they had never prosecuted a uh, you know a counterfeiting case. Um, I remember when certain law enforcement agencies did not want to support investigations because they didn't understand intellectual property theft and you know it was viewed as uh, you know putting someone out of business that's just trying to put food on their on their family's table. Um, I remember going to certain conferences back in the day as a sworn law enforcement officer when I was the only one that was there, the only law enforcement officer that was there. And it was a multitude of brands, basically, that would talk about challenges. But I have seen everything evolve. This was before the IPR Center, right? But look how much things have evolved over the years. Now you have the center, you have the grants that we talked about earlier. So the momentum, that may be a, a, a good word too. Yeah, momentum. That's a good word The too. momentum is really moving forward for, um, for this type of, of <clears throat> investigation uh, and, and being able to network with the appropriate authorities um, to have some big wins and some success. And I think it's going to continue to evolve. And I mean, you can even go into how the mechanisms have changed, the distribution uh, networks that we've talked about, how it's so easy to lay in bed on Sunday morning with your phone and order whatever you want. And it's here in two days. So accessible, you know? right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So evolution, we can switch to momentum. <laughs> 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 those, those are both great words. Great. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for being here today on Brand Protection Stories and thank you for doing the hard work. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I, I really appreciate you and uh, the relationship with the center over the years. It's, it's been a great thing and I consider I consider you guys friends and, and uh, really appreciate it. If there's anything I can do, please feel free to reach out. Be happy to help. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Jason's path to brand protection through music study, a love of true crime, and an understanding of the performance aspect required to get the right people and entities involved and engaged is a reminder of what we say at the ACAP Center. Successful brand protection takes a village and as such is multidisciplinary by nature and necessity. That is one of the reasons the ACAP Center works across disciplines and opens student internships to a variety of majors, including packaging, engineering, law, criminal justice, psychology, and international relations. If you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Brand Protection Stories, please contact ACAP Director Carrie Camel at kkamemel at msu.edu. Thanks for joining us today for this edition of Brand Protection Stories, produced by the Center for Anti-Counterfeiting and Product Protection, or ACAP, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. Please visit us at acap.msu.edu. ACAP is a nonprofit organization founded in 2009. It is the premier academic body focusing upon the complex global issues of anti-counterfeiting and product protection of all products across all industries and all markets responsible for training the next generation of brand protection professionals.
In addition to the series, we offer self-paced online certificate courses in brand protection, applied education and academic courses, executive education, student internships, live summits and virtual events, and publish the quarterly digital industry journal, The Brand Protection Professional. This is Leah Everett Burks with ACAP. Until our next session, keep protecting your brands and the world's consumers. Keep it real.